should be going. And uh, to date this tape today, I believe, is May 17th, 1994. And I am uh, sitting in the law office of uh, Mr. John Havelock uh, on 4th Avenue here in Anchorage. Um, and uh, during 1971, in the, um, depending upon how you want to count it, second or third uh, administration of Bill Egan, um, I guess the third, um, Mr. Havelock was uh, Governor Egan's Attorney General and as such was, uh, I guess the way I read the paper trail, sort of his, you were sort of really the point man for him on the whole native claims issue, certainly what it what it looks like, and that's obviously one of the things I want to ask you about in a second. Um, but I guess the best way to, to get into that would be, since hopefully these tapes are going to be going up and be available to, to people that are around long after you and I have kicked the bucket, that uh, maybe a brief bit of biography in terms of how you got to be um, involved with Governor Regan in, in the late winter of 70, I guess, when he when he started his third term. Okay, why don't I just talk for a little while sure. about that early uh, history. Sure. I uh, met uh, Governor Egan uh, because my first job in Alaska was in 1959 as a legal assistant and then assistant attorney general and then deputy attorney general in uh, from 19... Uh, 59 through 1963. Uh, <coughs> and, and so in some senses I was a known quantity to Egan uh, when I came back to the administration and to his new administration in 1970. Uh, I, had, I had left in 63 to go into private practice up here. Uh, I had, it was kind of fun those early years, of course, because uh, there was so much opportunity with staffing up a state that uh, didn't have much by way of staff. So, uh, although I've never been there since, I think I was the highest standing, as it were, member of my class at Harvard in 1963 when I was Deputy Attorney General and I was making more money than, uh, than my uh, colleagues that had gone on to Wall Street in those days. Uh, haven't been close since, I'm sure you. Probably had more fun now. Yeah. Oh yes, it was, and it was great fun. Um, the Native claims were, were not uh, a significant factor on the horizon in, those, in the 60s. There, there were some land selection issues and uh, which mainly involved being careful not to make people angry by s selecting land smack on top of a village or something. But there was very little talk of it. <coughs> Uh, I came back to the uh, claims in uh, about 1968. I went to Washington as a White House fellow and 
for 67A taking a leave from my firm, which was Ely, Guest, Rudd, and Havelock. And uh, when I came back, uh, things were starting to warm up a little bit. And uh, uh, I believe with uh, Herb Soule, who was later a public defender, you probably remember sure. her. Uh, we incorporated, as I recall, the uh, Cook Inlet Native Association and sort of got some kind of an understanding of, of what was going on and, uh, and what uh, might be coming. Um, sometime around 68 or 9, I uh, it began to heat up politically on the statewide level, and I can recall that we had a, oh, is this a somewhat uh, empty organization, but at any rate, an organization called Supporters of Settlement with Lowell Thomas, Jr., and he and I were co-chairs of this organization that was advocating for a fair and just settlement of the native claims, with the fair and just men. Uh, but it was obviously something other than uh, what uh, the administration, or the state administration, seemed to be offering around then. Um, when Hickel left for Interior, uh, of course, we got Miller, and Miller was really an unreconstructed settler in terms of his mentality on the settlement business. Um, and, uh, and it became clear that, you know, the, whatever uh, holding out of hand may have been involved in the Hickel administration was gone. Uh, I forget whether he was who had such a key role in uh, in Hickel's time, but Bob Harding was uh, the head of the natural resources section of the Department of Law in those days. And when Miller took over, Bob, at least as he told me, developed a direct pipeline with Governor Miller for that matter, bypassing the attorneys general, and, uh, and was the advisor and basically helped to solidify and rationalize Miller's uh, settler-oriented perspective on the Claims Act, which meant, among other things, that the claims were no business of the state. It was strictly a matter between the federal government and uh, and the Indians, and that the position of the state government was, if anything, hostile, because it meant, might mean some interference with their uh, selection entitlement. Well, I think he was also adamant about, about being opposed to any revenue sharing on the part of the state. Well, that would have been a participation, right. a sharing, right, revenue sharing. Right. That's right. So, uh, uh, Emil Nadi had been involved 
in the uh, beginning of the uh, establishment of the Alaska Federation Natives and, the, and also in the Cook Inlet Native Association. And, and I was Amos lawyer for of sorts, at any rate, insofar as he uh, in those two part of that. He didn't really need a lawyer much for consulting, but uh, I was his lawyer friend, and as far as I knew, his best friend among the legal community. And there was some uh, uh, there was some rough goings, and I was I'll admit I was somewhat unhappy with what I saw as a role being played by Stanley McCutcheon, the pick in particular, of, uh, who seemed, from my point of view, was sort of making cigar store characters out of Indians that Tayona can so not, no doubt he had a good heart and meant well, but uh, I was unhappy with the type of presentation that was coming off and, uh, and concerned about exploitation by uh, by lawyers of the coming of the settlement <coughs> and the, or of the settlement that was coming and the, uh, uh, the, the potential for sort of greed involved. And, and I guess maybe partly because of that I sort of backed away personally from participating actively and of course also I suppose they as Amos' fortunes declined and Don Wright's fortunes rose, the role that I played, which was uh, through him in part and, uh, and through people that I met through Amos, faded. Then uh, it was some kind of scramble, it would have been, I suppose, in the early, early 1970 about who would run for lieutenant governor. And, um, and I think basically that Roger Lang and Willie and uh, probably uh, Byron Malott uh, put Emil up for it. And, it. and I became Emil's campaign manager. Uh, and we ha gave a pretty good go for it, uh, considering, you know, the usuals for a Democrat and then some, I mean, uh, which included never having any money, and mm -hmm. then the special factor that drove me nuts, which was that Amol was afraid to fly, and so he would drive from Juneau to Anchorage and things like that. But I think we came within like 800 votes or something like that of uh, beating Red Voucher. <coughs> Uh, at any rate, uh, after we lost the primary to Red, um, I was active in Alaska World Affairs Council, was another activity, and uh, I asked Egan to make a talk to the uh, Alaska World Affairs Council Alaska's role in the world or something. And he said he would do that if I wrote a speech, the speech for him. And so I did. Afterwards, he told me that Neva read it and said, you know that John, he just thinks just like you. 
anyway, that led to a made more active role of doing speech writing for uh, Bill Egan. And, and, uh, and of course, I'd done a lot of speech writing for Emil, too. And I was about as well versed on the native claims from a uh, the kind of perspective that I could provide is that as a person could be. And obviously, I'm not an Alaska native and don't have the uh, feeling base and, and a lot of, uh, you know, and the roots and subsistence and so on. But I had a pretty good appreciation of it and I, uh, and I could write then and maybe still can sometimes. So. Um, and so I became sort of in charge of, after Bill got elected, I was a leading advisor. In fact, I was his first appointee to any office, and he sent me down to Juneau with the transition. In those days, one person was quite sufficient. <laughs> and so I went down and I, you know, interviewed the commissioners and so on, and, uh, uh, and I had some input into his other cabinet appointments, uh, particularly Byron who I had known through Amol and uh, thought was uh, you know, among the likeliest of all of the uh, young Native leaders of his generation to, to take a statewide uh, position someday. Uh, so that's how I got to, to be there. Um, and. And I guess the, uh, I've often thought it's a silly sort of thing to, uh, or an odd sort of thing to focus on or to think important. But I think what I brought to the administration when I came in was uh, just simply the psychology, the change in the psychology of the administration, which to this effect that the state government being the state government all of, of all the people, had a specific responsibility not to take sides. And this became articulated in a, in a couple of talks that I developed for Egan, which were called the taking the, the flexible position, which meant really no position at all. And, uh, you, you know, Nick was a smart guy, and he picked that up right away, and I knew that I hit a, a little uh, gold nugget there, because there was Nick talking about having a flexible position all <laughs> over the place uh, two weeks later. Well, let me stop you right there, because yeah. I was, was going to ask about that, because um, about three weeks before the 1970 election was the annual AFN convention, yeah. and, and that's really the first place that I picked that up. That uh -huh. That I don't know whether you remember all of this, but Egan and, and Keith appeared back to back. And right. Keith walks in and and gives his you know not a dollar, yeah. not an acre speech, and then Egan shows up and everybody, according to the Tundra Times, is, gives him a standing ovation and they're all clapping and screaming and this is like you know Moses has has come through the channel that's been open in the Red yeah. Sea and then when you when you read uh, what I've been able to find of what he said, he didn't say beans from baloney. You know, he said, <laughs> he said, "Well, I, yeah. I love you, and we're all going to. If I get elected, we're going to, 
we're going to do this thing in a fair way, and I'm going to, you know, but in terms of <laughs> laying out what his position was on the on the big issues involved in the settlement, uh, it was it wasn't there. Yeah. And so I guess my, that was going to be my question as to whether that was advertent or inadvertent. And I guess what I'm hearing from you is that it was it was advertent. Right. 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 <laughs> right. Yeah, because the the position, the settlement, at, or the, or the shape of the settlement, this wasn't there at that time. You know? I mean, there were various uh, assertions that nobody knew you could tell for sure where it was going to settle. Uh, maybe you can help me with this now. The uh, the Federal Field Committee's report. What's the date? When did they come out? Well, of they actually. Hickok and Joe Fitzgerald and Arlen and all those people did all that work in 68. Yeah. And it was delivered to Jackson in like December of 68. Yeah. And then Jackson was so enthralled by the whole thing that he then had those guys sort of type up, based upon that material, a skeleton of what they envisioned the settlement to look yeah. like. And so they did that, and it got massaged by Van Ness and yeah. the department. And so then Jackson introduced that bill, which was S-1830, yeah. in like April of 69. And so that bill became the template. Right. So we had that stuff on the table right. then at the time I'm talking about right. And I, of course, I was a very good friend of, of Bob Arnold in particular but also of Joe Fitzgerald and those people. So I was very much in touch with what they were doing and knew about those reports and had read virtually everything that went to Jackson before I ever went to Jackson. So, uh, but, you know, from that stuff, you could see, hey, there are a lot of options here. And, and uh, the Native organizations were still coming up, still finding their feet, so... You don't know who's out there to make a, to state what a native position is, you know, and, uh, and, uh, and certainly that was true from, uh, from, from late 70 on through that there was not a fixed position in the, or you couldn't, there wasn't a position you could say this was, this would be the it and no more or whatever, so. Uh, well, so anyway, so so the throughout, uh, of course, you know, B Bill Egan, I might add, you know, I think is, uh, of course, he's now. What I notice about Alaska is people say Bill who, but uh, but anyway, uh, at the time, many people thought Bill Egan was a guy who had this knack for shaking hands and remembering names. And it was otherwise, and then there's a not too smart guy from Valdez. And of course, I'm working so closely with him, I knew he was an enormously intelligent person, very smart guy. And, you know, although I was his principal advisor, as it were, I was one of other people. He didn't tell me, he was quite secretive about who he took advice from. And he had a deep throat in the oil industry, for example, when we talked to him about oil issues. Um, but uh, so I tell things to Egan or give him my views that 
he did his own council, and then finally, you know, I didn't know exactly where we were going to settle uh, when the focus came down to, you know, exactly how many acres could you live with. And I didn't know what his position was, and I'm not sure he did for sure, until he was asked whether he could live with that by Senator Jackson, say, in the middle of a hearing when we were very close to the end. There's uh, <coughs> some sort of uh, uh, a thoughtful nod of the head that had to be translated for the record, you know, from even, uh, saying, okay, on that. And I guess that's partly because he could feel it wasn't going to move any further anyway, and he could say yes, and the duel would start to go. Right. Well, actually, the um, the first I've been able to pin down where Egan actually had to have a, a specific position on, on the big issue, which of course was the acreage, yeah. was, was by February of 71. Jackson held hearings in February, and, and I've been through Eddie Weinberg's stuff, and, and Eddie, I think that you were involved in this, that when, when Egan was back there, he dropped into Eddie's office. And I think that you were also along on that, because obviously you guys were yeah. involved in all this. And, and at that point, Ed reports that, well, the governor says that he can probably take a 20 million acre settlement, plus if anybody wants any more than that, they want up to 40 million, then they have to take it in areas where the state itself is precluded from selecting, obviously, that for all these places that are that are already, um, you know, reserved and so are and, and refuges, and that really became all that spring of '71 was the, the the quote official close quote state position, which was it was actually in terms of dealing with. The natives, uh, it seemed to me politically quite shrewd because, you know, on the one hand, yeah. Egan saying, "I'm with you guys. I really, I support a 40 million acre settlement," but, but uh, it was really a 20 million acre settlement because right. what's it to the state if the, if the natives can get into places the state can't select? All the good, but it's not the state's. It's not coming out of the state of Alaska's hide if they do it. And, yeah. So I guess I was. My question was. Just, hey, I would. Yeah, I can recall that position, but I, you know, as I say, in terms of the <coughs> council, uh, I was giving him, and I think basically what his position was was, this is something I could live with, as opposed to, this is it, take it or leave it, or, you know, the sort of getting himself too fixed in a posture. But could I live with A? I could live with. So you don't recall how that. 20 and 20. How he developed that? That got developed. Well, it would have been fairly obvious. I mean, it's not like, uh, I assume it came out of Egan himself. But uh, no, I didn't propose it to him particularly. Okay. Well, that raises the sort of the next event, which is that originally everybody thought that Scoop was going to go right back out there and charge into this again. And for a whole variety of reasons, uh, he decides to wait on Wayne Aspen all this time right. around the block. Right. And, and that's a whole fascinating story in terms of Lloyd Meads and Nick Begich dealing with, with Wayne and, 
mm -hmm. and Haley and, and all of that. But but as part of all of that, from the from the dam finally, I can remember incidentally just a vignette that uh, going to see Simpson. Was that the congressman from Pennsylvania? Sailor. Sailor. John going Sailor. to see Sailor. And Sailor got up, and I was with. I was Egan and I and Sailor alone, and Sailor shook his finger at Egan. He said, I told you, Bill, I told you back in 1956, whatever it was, that this would be coming up and we should have settled it then. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah well, Haley had the same view, too. I, mean, I think Haley and yeah. Sailor were, yeah. were both around for statehood. Then. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and as I understand it, that was... I'd have to go back and look at my archives, but uh, one of my great, uh, most fascinating characters, who I assume you knew and I completely missed, unfortunately, was W.C. Arnold, of course. Mm -hmm. yeah. And if you read Arnold, if you read some of the brilliant stuff that he wrote early in the statehood fight in the early 1950s, when he's out there, of course, his agenda is to torpedo the whole <laughs> the whole operation, and he's he has a bunch of testimony in like 52 or 54 about, you know, don't think my clients don't love statehood. We're really right there, but you know, you really ought to clean this native claims thing up first. You know, knowing, of course, that if they could ever get them spinning down that rat hole, that, right. that there'd never be a statehood act. Right. But, but Arnold saw it. Arnold yeah. saw it better. That was a little incidentally, I mean, a comparable situation was the environmental, the environmentalist push in right around 70 to, to, to really do a thorough job of exploring the uh, pipeline route across Canada, you know, right. up the Mackenzie, which would have essentially put taps on the back burner and it didn't take uh, even a damn fool like me could see that the, environmentally speaking, that route up the Mackenzie was far worse than anything that we could do in Canada, I mean, in, in Alaska. Right. Well, um, I guess the first... And also, just one more vignette, uh, since I didn't spend a lot of time with these guys. Uh, going to see Hickle. And Hickle, and it's me, and Egan, and Hickle, and I'm pretty sure it was Ryan. And uh, up in Hickle was, uh, you know, glorious in that gigantic room that the Secretary of Interior has there, you know. Palace, and uh, we went in to see him anyway. And I can remember after some preliminaries of Hickel saying, "said Don't worry, Bill. I'm going to have that freeze lifted by the you know, end of next month." And Ryan is standing behind him. Ryan <laughs> shakes his head. So, never saw a subordinate cancel out what his boss had said so effectively. <laughs> and of course, Ryan was dead right. There was no way that... I didn't believe that Hickel was doing more than me. It was one of those gestures. Yeah, actually, the, the day Hickel got fired, uh, talking to Frank Bracken about that, yeah. that, uh, that he was up on the hill basically doing business with Van S, saying uh -huh. that Hickel agreed to the extension for another six months. It was right before Thanksgiving. Of seventy, and, yeah. and he came back and find that found that uh, you know Hickel had just come back from Ehrlichman's office and had been given the 
86 over the side of the building. Uh, but he'd always remembered it because it had to do directly with extending the land for sure. But how did, how did Egan get along with Wayne Aspinall? Did you spend any time with, with well, Egan and Aspinall? Um, like he got along with, uh, like you say, Aspinall was not, I mean, these were crotchety, older Congress and um, and like you were just talking, who's the guy from Pennsylvania? Just Sailor. Talking? Sailor. It, it was similar in a sense. Um, Egan was, one of the, the nice things about him is he was the most, in many respects, a very humble man. And even though he's the governor and through three times and so on, and uh, he knew all kinds of people on the Hill anyway, um, he'd be very deferential. And he'd be grovel up to, uh, to Aspinall like he was, uh, you know, a waiter or something serving a movie star. And, uh, and uh, mind you, Aspinall knew that he was dealing with a person of consequence. I mean, that Egan was, he knew him well enough. It was that, uh, uh, but they got, you know, the fact is that uh, Egan was able to talk to Aspinall uh, very effectively, more than anybody else I understand. Okay. Not that anybody could really speak very well with Aspinall. He's a crotchety <laughs> son of a bitch. Yeah. Well, I've, I've, I've actually found that that uh, some references where Aspinall says that he and Egan went all the way back to 51. Uh -huh. The first yeah. time that right. Aspinall had come up here with the Interior Committee and he had met Egan at, at that stage, yeah. and obviously all through the whole statehood campaign. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, they, yeah. he, he didn't call him Wayne. Wayne. He didn't call him you know, Mr. Chairman or anything. But he, he was a Wayne. But, uh, uh, nonetheless, it just, that was Egan's manner with all of these people. He was an extremely effective lobbyist for whatever he was lobbying for because he was so humble. Well, um, the reason I asked about that is that is that Aspinall, who uh, I really sort of grudgingly have come to have some respect for since yeah. I've gotten into all of this, was of being a very shrewd mm -hmm. legislator and, and when he basically didn't have the votes anymore, the Lloyd yeah. Meads and and Sam yeah. Steiger had joined up with him. But yeah. the fact that he didn't have the votes ended up being just a minor little problem for the chairman, you know, that that was the least of his problems, he didn't have the votes, and so... Well, he did have the ability to call committee meetings, <coughs> or to not call them. I can right. recall periods when committees just didn't get called. Right, well, that's how, that was his leverage. Yeah. That, that he just told Haley to stop holding meetings and then we won't be having any of these right. votes that I'm not winning and we'll <laughs> see how we'll see how kids like yeah. upstarts like Lloyd Meads likes that. And yeah. and when they finally when, when Begich finally brokered the deal what Wayne extorted from him, mm -hmm. um, which I thought was was very clever, was was a permutation of the original Egan you know, 20 now and 20 out of places that yeah. the state can't select, except it was changed yeah. so that it was give the natives 20 around their villages and then let the state select everything. Yeah. And then they could come back in and take 20 million at the end. And, and that the major beneficiary of that, obviously, was the state of Alaska. It wasn't, yeah. it wasn't, you weren't benefiting the federal public. Well, Egan, Egan was also thinking, though, in that about more money out of the federal 
retain lands. I mean, it was still, uh, I mean, that was also <coughs> to get more land out from under federal domination. Right. Well, I guess my, my question was going to be, did, do you recall that, was Aspinall on back channels discussing that land selection formula with, with Egan and yourself, or did you think he just sort of, he and Ziegler came up with that as, um, you know, knowing that it would benefit the state? I couldn't tell you. I mean, I would say it's almost certain that it, was, it would have been touched upon, but, uh, you know, I don't remember. I mean, you're suggesting that maybe that Wayne and Ziegler developed that idea and tried it out on Egan and yeah, Egan picked it well, up. Well, I mean, it seems to me that the... Yeah. the well, a paper track might show that. If, well, if they, if, if Ziegler's records before that show it there, then it's possible. Wait, it was certainly would have been with when would not have been inconsistent with Egan to pick that up as an idea if it got laid on the table by Wayne. Right. Well, I guess the, the, the problem is I haven't been able to find anything that, that um, really describes sort of Egan and Aspinall's informal communications, assuming that there even were any. Right? Yeah. And I don't really even know whether... Well, there were... I, I never met with Aspinall by myself. So it would have been Egan and myself and Aspinall. And we did meet because I have a general impression of the personality. Uh, but I don't, I have no specific recollection of what you're talking about. Okay. Uh, the, the other thing that, that actually was a, seemed at the time to be a major, um, I don't know if concession is the right word, but certainly a, a token of good faith was that when, when Egan had gone in in May of 71 to testify in front of Aspinall, there was this whole issue about what do you do about, about state lands that had been TA'd already uh, around villages mm -hmm. that, that these TA'd lands would be in these village selection areas. Mm -hmm. And in, in May when he testified, Egan said, well, um, good guy that I am would be willing to give back one township per village. And when, yeah. when the deal finally got brokered, I've seen some Jim Wickwire memoranda where, where you were obviously back and forth as they all were, and that where they had lunch with you and you indicated that the governor had, had changed his position and would be willing to give back up to three townships yeah. if that would make that would sweeten the pie yeah. to get this thing going. And uh, so I was wondering if you recollected that and whether or not that was a, the kind of thing that, that you would have decided or whether Egan would have personally made a decision like that. And if so, whether it was a, that big a deal or was it just more of a technical? Well, it was a big deal in this sense and that it uh, engaged a whole lot of other sovereignty sort of factors and it engaged the legal issue of the vitality of TA lands, as a, as a, as a, you know, it was a, it was a state of that thing. So it was a very big deal from that point of view. It was obviously not a very big deal from the point of the lands qua lands, with the sacred, and uh, 
and I you know, do I recall the issue that you're talking about, and I think that uh, I think that I would have had did have a conversation that caused that movement with myself and Egan and probably Chuck Herbert, where we talked about what it might mean to go the to go further in that direction. And uh, you know, from my point of view, the legal point of view, having it didn't once we gave one or we and legally speaking that we conceded what was important already, so that it was uh, just a matter of some lands. And, uh, So it became, it was relatively easy, it wasn't a gigantic argument point where, you know, where Egan had to be persuaded over and over. Right. Well, <coughs> now the, the other thing uh, I'd be curious about is when Egan, I mean not Egan, when Aspinall got his back up, you know, when he stopped holding these meetings, uh, you know, a big part of if, if if the governor went around sort of uh, genuflecting to Wayne, I mean, according to talking to Guy Martin, what poor Begich had to go through in terms of of uh, currying the yeah. old man's favor and and well, still. I thought that Nick took a page from Egan's book because Nick would come along with those things sometime, and he was still, you know, he was wet behind the ears as a congressman, and he watched Egan and he watched him be effective and. And uh, and I think he picked up on a lot of the styles that he had there to his benefit in dealing with these potentates like <laughs> Haley and Aspinall. Now, did you ever have occasion to talk to to Begich about how he saw this uh, unfolding? Um, did he ever have a uh, Did he come to a, a firm position on the terms of the settlement, or was he still? Doing himself just as a broker all the way to the yeah, end. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, as you know, the only one that wasn't a broker is it was, uh, or was, was, was Mike. Mike checked with what the AFN position was on that day, and that was his position. And it moved with AFN position, that's all. So, in a lot of ways, he wasn't really a player in that. Of course, he was the big player, and in flipping over uh, Jackson's uh, strategy, which is actually the strategy of a lot of people, of having the House vote first. Well, actually, Mike, it's, it's quite interesting that, uh, is that certainly by 1971, Mike had the, the AFN religion. Uh, yeah. But the internal memoranda from 1970 was that at the, the same time that Mike was going to the AFN conventions and saying, I'm right there with you, <laughs> that privately, in terms of, you know, the markup sessions were closed in those days. That's right. And privately, uh, Mike was saying, oh, a township of village is fine. Yeah, that's and, right. And nobody ever really knew that that was his yeah. initial position. And then, yeah. the, uh, in a very Mike-like fashion, uh, <laughs> changed it. How about, we haven't talked about Ted Stevens at all. Were you guys in touch with, with Ted? Yeah. For all this time, oh, yeah. he, um, 
Yeah. Well, Ted had Ted had some specific political objectives. One was to not have a big corporation. He was scared of the political implications of a big corporation. And uh, I can remember one thing. Is this is again, this is a little bit off topic, but meeting with Mike and Egan and Ted and myself alone. Yeah, I don't think for, I don't think Nick wasn't there. And, and actually you wouldn't often, because the House of the House and Senate is the Senate, that was uh, often the case. That, and uh, talking about Section 7i, this is one of the little, tiny little areas where I had a personal influence. And I forget what the 7i sharing was, but it was less, you know. And I said, look, and I did some quick calculations, and uh, I said, this isn't, there isn't enough going into 7i. It's going to be way too unequal a settlement. And one of the problems that, that I could see with the settlement, with others maybe too, but not necessarily the, the senators, was that you're going to create you know, some extremely rich people and some people that have nothing out of the settlement. And, and, uh, and much to my surprise, again, Mike said, well, what do you want? And so I said, well, I'll raise it to whatever it is now, which was I was hoping to be acceptable. I should have asked for more, from my point of view. <coughs> And so, sure, that was okay. And so they went on to another subject. And I was just, you know, just sort of puzzling, with, uh, in a way, and an eye-opener about how legislation is made. That would zip through just like that in a moment's conversation, changing the uh, percentage of sharing on 7 Right. Well, um, actually, I wanted to get to what I think that meeting was here in a second. Uh, the other guy we haven't talked about, how did Egan see Don Wright and AFN and all of this? Did he like Wright, thought Wright was a loose cannon, thought AFN was was an independent, legitimate force back there, or were they just, were the natives really playing on the margin in terms of... Well, the, of course, Egan was uh, maybe ahead of me in some respects, and particularly with the elders, in knowing everybody. The, my contacts were basically with the, the younger guys, and I knew most people that were in their 20s or early 30s. The Egan knew the guys that were in their 50s and 60s, so I don't think he ever made the uh, mistake of thinking that Don Wright spoke for all natives one way or the other. Uh, he was, you know, just another factor in the, in the politics of uh, what was going on. Then. Well, I know that he. I not Don Wright was not. I, I didn't like Don Wright particularly. You know, I figured Don was a, you know, a latecomer to the native uh, settlement. I can recall him coming in with Ed Murdy's when. No one made me aware he was supposed to be a native when he was a contractor, you know, coming in trying to fix something probably in the early 60s and, and trying to fix a contract that uh, we'd screwed up on, you know, and building on a road job or something. Uh, but, 
and I was no doubt I was partisan because Don had displaced Amos and something Robles to do. And uh, and here was this guy who was doing basically white culture contractor on Fairbanks who but you know, in retrospect he was maybe the right person at the right time for some purposes. But there were plenty of rumors around at the time that Don was on the take from the industry at the same time and, uh, uh, and they had unexplained expense money. He wasn't the only one with unexplained expense money. Uh, so, uh, and I don't know whether that rubbed off on Egan or not. I presumably, when we'd be traveling on the plane or something, I might grumble about Don or say something. So he probably was so aware of at least what I told him. But you didn't hear ever hear any of that from Egan. I mean, you no, he was not uh, Egan. That wasn't the Egan style anyway. He never talked okay. bad about people. Okay. Well, uh, one of the things I sort of almost got myself jumped over to the Senate here, but before we we leave the House, uh, the, the two things I, I wanted to clear up. One was you don't recall whether Egan when. When Aspinall was still refusing to move a bill out of his committee that summer, mm -hmm. whether Egan was involved in, in going back and trying to, you know, now Wayne, we got to do this, you know, don't get your back up, um, or did he just leave it to, to baggage to try and figure something out? Uh, oh, he would have talked to Wayne. He also talked to him on the phone. And um, and Egan never, I mean, I'm not sure what you're getting at here, but he always would have wanted to see a bill move. He was, he wanted to sell it. I guess I was, maybe I was sort of asked to, you know, particularly, but, uh, but yeah, there seemed to be, there's all this movement for a settlement, and then finally Wayne gets everybody in the position where, as usual, either this thing is done Wayne's way or it's right. not done, and, and Wayne is quite good at yeah. Communicating that it's fine with him if it's not done, it's perfectly yeah. okay with him. And so, poor Baggage was going nuts trying to figure out how to get Wayne off the dime. Yeah. Well, and Egan would have helped on that. Yeah. But you don't recall ever actually physically going back and, and dealing with Wayne and trying to. About getting a hearing schedule? Well, I don't know, about getting a bill out of there yeah, during that. Yeah. Period. Oh, yes, I do. Yeah. I can't tell you this is the date and this is what happened, but yes, sure. Egan was asking, I mean, it was done in the of getting a hearing, which you needed to hear you move to the Then the, the other thing in the, in the House that's of some uh, significant historical interest subsequently was was the fight on the floor over the Udall Sailor Amendment that eventually became the D2 provision yeah. by, by the end, and, and that obviously, that was really the only thing that happened when, that, when the bill got to the floor that wasn't just part of the script. In fact, I was just talking to Harry Crandall earlier this morning about this. Right. You know, in, in 69 and 70, you look at the hearing record, you don't see the environmental community anywhere. I mean, all of a sudden, in the in the spring of '71, here comes the Wilderness Society through the door, saying, 
you know, this isn't an Indian thing, this is a public land thing, and we want our part of the pie. And do you recall how Egan uh, took to such interlopery, or, <laughs> or did he view well, it as such? Well, I got it's real hard to get me to get the sequencing right there, because it was very hot and in terms of things happening. But, uh, just the same way I described the, my personal experience with, with uh, the Seven Eye, I also had a personal experience with Section 17. Initially, that was something that, my recollection is at any rate, that uh, Doug, um, Jones. Doug Jones and I cooked up. And the two of us had this sort of side plot to have, to recreate a planning and to, in some sense, it was redoing the Federal Field Committee over again, but it was also addressing what we could see as a need for cooperative land planning in the best of all possible worlds in the new regime. We were scared, or I was scared of, uh, and, uh, of having creating, in effect, a res system of reservations based around corporations. Uh, you know, you can look at the way in their heyday, Weyerhaeuser ran chunks of Washington, or the big timber companies in Maine, and you were down in, in uh, Louisiana, and you could see uh, uh, company towns built on around a corporation would be just as bad in terms of undemocratic as, uh, uh, as any a reservation might be. So, um, so at any rate, we were looking at ways to try to smooth over these boundaries that were being made. And I do, and I remember, uh, so anyways, and that was basically we got no flack over it as far as I, I didn't, Doug didn't seem to, you know, just something that the big guys didn't care about far as I can make out, so that it went along very nicely. And then suddenly, my recollection is that it happened in, uh, in a Senate conference committee. That, uh, and we came out of a conference committee, and, uh, and it was one of those things, again, you go in, no staff allowed. And I was sitting in Ted's office. And Ted came out with this thing with an 80 million acre study program. I looked at that and I said, Jesus, where did this come from? Or words, I wouldn't have said Jesus, but I would have. I was adamant and excited because it, it was a big, big change to me and I was scared to death of it from a state perspective. And I remember Ted saying, oh, it's nothing much. You know, just a little thing there, a concession in order to get something else, and I think And it was, uh, I assume Jackson had, had put that in at that point to, to serve his constituency. Jackson was very good at that, you know, I mean that, and my personal view is, is different but, un, but not unrelated bill was the Pipeline Authorization Act, and the uh, whole SOB business that we've had with the oil export came about as a result of Jackson sticking in the ban on oil export because he thought, and, and it had been just slipping it through over Ted and, and anybody else that cared. Uh, and the effect from his point of view was knowing that there, or his own shrewd 
guesses or Van Ness telling him that the oil companies were overstating the case and there'd be an oil surplus on the West Coast, and then thinking, oh boy, and we do this export ban and I will, we will get the a pipeline out of Puget Sound to take care of the surplus. And that's what all that oil export thing is about. And, uh, it's also about Alaska's delegation and somebody in particular not protecting, being out of Fox by Jackson. Well, I've always heard, and this is obviously way off the claims bill, but that uh, I'd always thought that that was uh, because there was all this hullabaloo about how we have to we have to set NEPA aside because there's a national security component of all of this, and, and that if in fact all you were really going to do with this oil was to give it to the Japanese, well then why is it that we're we're going to throw NEPA in the trash? And so then somebody then put everybody to their proof and said, well, if that's really what you're saying, then prove it by well, that was Jackson. Right. Yeah, Jackson said, that's right, all Anita that you're talking right. about is correct, and that it was, there was an underlying argument about NEPA because the whole bill included a NEPA, uh, getting rid of uh, NEPA right. applications. Right. Uh, not totally, I might add, but partially. That is, there was still environmental effects that were pipeline and so on. But mostly it was... Uh, it was the review, the judicial review part of it, for amendments to it. Well, back to the full relief D2, one of the things, and I talked at length with, with Bill Van Ness about this last week, and he actually got interested in <coughs> and gave Doug Jones a call, you know, he's back at Ohio State. Yeah. And they couldn't remember, but when I started actually going through all this, it was amazing to me that in the 1970 Senate bill, not in the, not in the version that was the land use planning bill to begin with, mm -hmm. but the bill that actually the committee finally reported in 1970 and that eventually passed the Senate in 1970, there was a provision in there in the section that Jackson had that extended the land freeze for five years until such time as somebody wanted to lift it case by case. There was a provision that required the secretary, while this five-year freeze was on, to uh, study acreage for its suitability for potential inclusion as, as national parks and, and refuges. And there was, there was no minimum withdrawal. There was no 80 million acres or any of that stuff. But in terms of sort of the, the initial, this is a good idea, it was actually way back there in 1970, mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. Bill, for the life of him, has no idea how it got in there. Yeah, and other than to say that it that it was non-controversial at the time, right. because he would have remembered if it was yeah, controversial. Yeah. And and that the 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 thing that that you'd already did, the 80 million, was even all the way to the very end with the Bible amendment. And that's what I, I've always, uh, Ted and I are going to get together one last time. I've been doing this in sequence with Ted, because he's been, you know, he was back in 1960 on this stuff. And so one of the things I want to ask him is that what the Bible Amendment did was not put in a floor in terms of an acreage withdrawal, but to say that whatever acreage the secretary studied or withdrew 
that state and regional corporation selections, they could be filed, but they would not be processed and there would be no conveyances in the study areas until Congress had time to decide what it wanted to do. And if Congress decided that it wanted to take the land for a park, the state would have to go elsewhere. And, and that's what Ted agreed to in the Bible Amendment. And then, but even then, it still didn't make any difference because it said this applied to whatever acreage the secretary wanted to withdraw, leaving sort of a pregnant pause there that he could say, I don't want to withdraw any. And so it was then the 80 million comes in, uh, which really changes the ante. But um, I don't know if I, am I ringing any bells on any, how are you just going to get Some, early? as I say, it's a bit of a jumble to me, yeah. that part of it. Okay. Yeah, I, uh, I do remember. Uh, well, my, again, my emotional sense of it was we, we want, quote, won on the, by defeating the Bible amendment, right? Well, you and actually got it. Steve, the Bible amendment, well, the, the Udall Sailor amendment was the amendment in the House. Right. And, and that one went down in flames yeah. by only 40 votes, so yeah. it was pretty close. Yeah. And then when, when the whole thing came over to the Senate, then even a week before the thing went on the floor in the Senate, Stevens was in the Anchorage Times saying, this is terrible, the Bible is going to have an amendment that looks like the thing Udall yeah. had. But that was not the amendment that Bible actually offered. The, the, the original Udall amendment sort of made the, you know, all of the state land, state and native land selections were subject to the approval of, of basically the Land Use Planning Commission, yeah. and there was all kinds of very onerous things, and that was all gone. And so Ted actually. The Bible Amendment goes in a voice to voice vote, and Ted, you know, that sort of kabuki theater they all do out there, you know, thanking the gentleman from Nevada for yeah. his working with him to make this thing more palatable and blah, blah, blah. And so you can read between the lines if you know the system to realize that Ted got a lot out of the Bible Amendment and thrown in the trash before it was ever actually offered. Um, yeah. But 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 you know but didn't that didn't that mean the fact that the defeat in the house meant that way going to conference afterwards that uh, and Ted was on the conference that you can always for a senator it would be very easy for him to sink uh, anything that had been lost in the house so the so. He should not have had to make those kind of major concessions from his point of view or our point of state point of view. Um, and when it came out of the committee, what we got was 80 million acres, right. which was a hell of a big concession uh, and appeared so at the time to me, if not to him. Right. Well, and it's certainly, you know, I mean, the critical part was because inside those 80 million all state and native corporation selections were suspended. Yeah. And that was, they could study the, the Jesus side of everything if they let all right. the state and the natives go in and take whatever they wanted out of the pot. Yeah, but yeah that's, I, I um, unfortunately, as you know from, Ted spent so many years being Ted that it's very difficult <laughs> for him 
to remember <laughs> stuff. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. That's one of the things I want to ask him about. Well, I guess the, the last thing, um, you know, get out of your hair here, is obviously the conference committee. And at, as near as I've been able to piece it together, um, the first week, that first week of December of 71 is when the conference committee met and or began meeting. And that whole week they hung up, that first week they hung up over what the internal land formula was going to look like. I mean, obviously they had agreed on 40 million acres, but then of course it became the issue of which 40 million acres, which, which is also an interesting thing in terms of how the natives viewed all of that. And, and it was eventually broken. Egan got into town. You guys were all there. I guess Esther was around and all of this, and you were there. And Egan flew in on like a Thursday night. And the next morning, the whole thing broke. That Lloyd Meads put together a compromise that Jim Lookbart helped him with, and everybody bought it the next day, which is of course the, the formula that we we have in the bill, which. You know, everybody, courtesy of Ted, stays around the village, and then there are the alternating townships for state and regional corporations selection outside. And, and so my question was, do you recall being involved in, and that's obviously really technical stuff that had a lot of policy implications uh, and political implications since it allowed the conference to go forward. Do you, do you remember being involved with Meads or Wickwire or anybody in that stuff? Or? Well, we hung out. Um, I I remember being involved in uh, what the checkerboarding decision mm -hmm. was that then right. or was that earlier? No, I think the checkerboards came out of that. Out of that, yeah. Yeah, well, that was probably something which I had a lot of input. Probably didn't deserve to, since it wasn't really a legal question, more of a, again, it was my own pop sociology on what the down the road consequences would be. And I, what I thought that we were going to get out of checkerboarding was uh, some a lot of trading. And again, to to attempt to, uh, from my point of view, to minimize the impact of uh, of having large consolidated blocks of uh, of territory where native power was the only kind of power. And that I also had the I forget whether that was then or earlier the concept of the municipality as a selecting body. In retrospect, it's obviously I misjudged how much that they should get. It should have been a smaller amount. But the idea of having a municipality also was intended to diminish that um, potential, at least as I saw it at the time. So I don't. I was definitely involved in both of those decisions, maybe in a very substantial way with uh, both of them. Hmm. Yeah, but actually, the municipality, I was going to ask you that at the, at the end, because uh, I was going to ask you about the, the native sovereignty implications, or lack thereof, and all of this, but 
But, you know, originally, as near as I've been able to put together the municipality issue. Well, Ted's, you know, one of Ted's big objectives was to go as far as he could in sort of abolishing that thing. I mean, Ted was delighted with business corporations, saw the business corporation concept as evolving into, as indeed is maybe in part the case, into these outfits starting to act like any other corporation, which would make a, a white man like uh, Ted Stevens feel real comfortable. So, uh, right. well, you know, actually, uh, I found some some memos discussing meetings with Ted as early as 1960, when he was still in the Interior right. Department, where Stevens is shaking his head. I mean, I, my view of Ted has changed quite radically in my old age. I, I, uh, he's a very smart, savvy. Oh yeah guy in ways that in my youth I never appreciated. Yeah. And, and even in 1960, he was saying how exasperating, in fact, even one of these memos is great, of, of, you know, when the administration leaves, I'm going to move back to Alaska and get involved in politics, but I'm going to get killed because now that statehood's over, the biggest deal up there is this native claims thing. And the natives all hate me because I'm a Republican and they're all Democrats. Mm -hmm. And the Republicans are too idiotic to realize that the more land we can get to the natives, there's more land out of the federal estate, and that these people are just like everybody else. And if, and if there's something worth doing out there, they're going to do it, and they're going to need us to help them. And, and why I can't get the goddamn Anchorage Chamber of Commerce to yeah. see that it's in their interest. I mean, it was a very Republican sort of yeah. conservative Chamber of Commerce analysis yeah. of this whole yeah. thing. And this was like 1960. I mean, very prescient in, in terms of how it's, how it's just worked yeah. out. Well, he, w and he was very effective with that. You know, and one of the, maybe the biggest uh, misfortune of the Settlement Act was the casual way in which fish and game interests were sold out of the act. You know, I mean, I know I've heard since, you know, many of these guys that seem to me made the mistakes from the Native community saying it was stolen and blah, 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 but I didn't hear that kind of hard advocacy. The whole thing ended up focusing on numbers of acres, and and the fish and game thing was sort of given away. It's amusing to watch things turn around now as fish and game becomes federalized, so suddenly, lo and behold, there's big <coughs> back in there. Right. Well, actually, I was going to ask you about that, because that, that was the last, I think, of state-related event, is that, yeah. is that after, um, after this thing breaks in terms of the checkerboard agreement, yeah. So now we've got, a, we've got a land formula. And then, according to Ted, that, that's like on a Friday in the first week of the conference. The, the Alan Bible, who of course is running things because Scoop's off trying to become president, says to Ted, well, you know... Wait, can I make my point effectively that the, the checkerboarding actually fitted in with Section 12, in, or 17, I mean, because the concept, you know, what we're looking for is to try to reintegrate what the act was tearing apart. And all of the parties involved were into wanting to have a, you know, equality in terms of 
relationships between natives and non-natives, uh, maybe on some on Republican terms, some on Democrat. But, and that was the function of the checkerboarding was to to force people into a trading position, <laughs> to partly breaking up massive land holdings that would you know, never trade, and also with the hope that there would be through land use planning that there would be you know, joint agreements and so on for, um, to, to, to create overlapping jurisdictions. Hmm. Well, well, that actually raises the, a more basic point, which is even inside the native community, which was much more divided into factions than the, yeah. than the present mythology <laughs> right. would lead you to believe, you know, there from the very beginning there was this, there appears to have been this major uh, schism between, you know, the sort of the Charlie Edwardson who got it from Bill Paul sort of theory of, you know, this is a real estate transaction and what's mine's mine and, and to hell with you and if I got Prudhoe Bay under my land, that's because it's my land and, and what happens to you out in Shafornik is interesting information, but not right. any of my concern. And then on the other side, there's sort of the, what I call the Scoop Jackson Field Committee view, yeah. which is that this is basically socioeconomic legislation on sure. a grand scale. And that's where Ramsey Clark came out, and yeah. he got in big trouble. That's why there's a Don Wright. Yeah. Because, yeah. because. But for the rest of us, we're still motivated, motivated that way. And, and that, and I wouldn't say it where I think it came as much as anything was from the Kennedy hearings and, the, mm -hmm. uh, and that effort that it cut when he'd come out and uh, there'd been all these hearings up and down the Yukon Casaquim and so on and the, you know, bringing up the dramatizing in ways that hadn't been done before those problems that needed addressing and uh, you know and, and this was going to be part of the whether Charlie Everson wanted to call it a land deal or not, from my point of view, it was socioeconomic. Well, that certainly, in terms of the actual people that made the decision, it certainly looks like that was their, yeah. their view. Well, I guess the last thing I was going to ask you about is, is, as I was saying about this business with Bible, that, that he apparently told Ted that why don't you guys get all the Alaska people together over the weekend and see how much of what's left of this that you can all agree on, and so that you don't have to trouble those of us, um, you know, working out these squabbles uh, next week in the conference. And so that Saturday, there was this private meeting that apparently went on for a long time, four, five, six hours, and so I'm told, in Ted's office, and and it was Ted and Mike and Begich. Egan and I think you were there and maybe Katz and those people and it's interesting because because uh, the people that were not there of course were Don Wright and the natives and they yelled bloody hell well, because we weren't supposed to be having private meetings or something well Gravel of yeah. course in classic Gravel, Gravel he said <laughs> yeah. you're right cross my heart hope to die this is all between us and then he, as soon as he got a memo he ran yeah. right over to the Capitol Hill Hotel and gave it to Don Wright and, yeah, and Willie Hensley was phoning baggage up in the middle of the night and screaming into the phone yeah yeah I recall that did well I guess the, the first question was was there were a lot of things decided in that memorandum um, 
uh, about the internal operation of the settlement. And, and obviously today, uh, knowing what I know about how the Hill works, you could hardly ever get away with a meeting like that without the natives, at least in the right. room, to complain. But, but they obviously weren't there then, 25 years right. ago. Was, was there any, I mean, why was that? I mean, was it, uh, why weren't they there? Yeah. Because we were getting down to the nub of what was going to be the state's position here at the end. What could the state live with, not live with? It wasn't a negotiating session. It was sort of a bottom liner for the for the state, which was you know, was Egan and Ted as being the major players. And so they just had to figure this out amongst themselves. And what could they live with? Yeah. Yeah. Well, what about? Uh, because what was going to happen would happen. So, well, how did Egan feel about about uh, regional corporations? And I mean, one of the things that I find interesting, uh, and actually the, the last question, uh, actually I'll ask you to get into this, but but you know, even up to the in 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 '70, when the when the Plunkett hideout, there's a bill to. To figure out what to do with the relatively paltry seven and a half million that the Clinton's and Hydes got. Yeah. And when that went to conference, it was Aspinall and Haley saying, over our dead body, we will never have be a party, as long as we are running the Interior Committee, of having an Indian settlement where these people are just given the money to go out and do whatever they goddamn please with it. But, and this, and Gravel was right there with the natives saying, we want to be able to do whatever we want, and, and Aspinall won, so that Clinkett Haida had to come up with a plan for spending the money, and some adult had to see it. And then a year later, the same guys turned right around and put a billion dollars on the street with, with no controls or supervision. Yeah. And that, to me, is one of the most amazing policy reversals in the whole story. Mm -hmm. and, uh, you, I mean, did Egan have a view about that sort of thing, or was that just a detail lost in the shuffle, or...? Well, it was not, it was something that was discussed. Uh, because there is this, you know, there was this sort of the stereotype view that if you give a bunch of money to natives, they'll go out and piss it away on booths and snow machines or something. So, so it was discussed, and um, and I guess the. Uh, I guess it was. Uh, I, I'm not. I'm not. Also, I'm not. I don't think that it was controversial in the sense that anybody was. This is going to be a terrible mistake. Versus. This is going to be a wonderful thing. Except that I think Ted thought it would be a wonderful thing to have all these corporations. Yeah. And, and uh, 
In fact, he carried, as I recall, as I recall, uh, I was certainly uneasy, and I must have talked to Egan about it, about having about, about the elimination of the nonprofit aspect. You can recall, as I recall, mm -hmm. back in the Federal Field Committee's report, there was a nonprofit or something, and and we were worried about how you were going to get the recognition of of or addressing all these social indicators. I guess again, we're talking about a Democratic view versus a Republican view. All these social indicators. How the hell were these corporations that were uh, profit or non-profit going to address that? And of course, you know that I guess we could see that, well, I don't know whether we knew or not, but it could, that uh, the bill allowed a corporation to be profit or non-profit, and I guess in the organization. Only at the village level. Pardon? Only at the village at level. At the village level, yeah. yeah. Although, Another thing that you know, we didn't, uh, well, at any rate, so we figured that that might, that was something that we wanted, that Ted didn't, uh, didn't care about. He was all for, the, for these corporations and that they were, you know, going to be development corporations, like as you described, they'd be a development corporation. And it'd be, it'd be a happy day for everybody. They'd be contracting <laughs> with uh, all of his friends and everybody else in the state, not just lawyers. <laughs> well, I was actually talking to talking to Wickwar. Uh, you know, he just last time I talked to him on the phone, he'd just been having lunch with Tom Kelly, you know, and, and you know, you read what Tom Kelly had to say about the Claims Act at the time it was going on, and then all of the money that Tom Kelly has made up or slope, you know. He's, and his liquor, I was saying, you know, oh, yeah, Tom's a true believer now. He just wasn't. Yeah. Uh, well, yeah, it always pissed me off that Tom Harding was such an opponent of the thing, and then his firm ended up being hired by the North Slope, uh, or the Arctic Slope, or whoever, North Slope, I guess. So. Well, so I guess, so, so then the, the answer to that is just that there was really, it was just the temper of the times then? Uh, well, I don't think that we thought that it was true, that it was, a, I mean, that is, Egan, and uh, myself, and I don't know where Nick would have been, I mean, we would not have assumed that because you gave money that it would be pissed away. Uh, and from Ted's point of view, it was as long as it flowed through the corporate setup, that was good. The, also, there were, you know, there were internal checks on it. Um, one of the things that, you know, again, what, you know, Somewhere immediately after the act, and immediately somebody decided that they were all going to be profit corporations, and then everybody fell in line. Like, well, no, you know, the problem with that, which I've never been able to get to the bottom of, which was village corporations had the option of either organizing right. profit or non-profit, but uh, they had to, whichever they did, they had to issue 100 shares of stock to everybody. Well, under the Alaska Corporate Code, the non-profit section, Nonprofit corporations don't have shares of stock. <laughs> there was no way that anybody could organize under no, Alaska law, and and mm -hmm. obviously the way to have changed that was obviously to have amended the state yeah. statute, or yeah. or to have just said the way they did with so many other things that notwithstanding the state law, you can use you can use the state law to do this. But but 
you know, it's one of those details that that um, that fell through through the cracks. Um, it's amazing to me how much stuff did fall through. Um, when you think about like land protection, you know, that all these guys, you know, Art Lazarus and all these people, and, and they got they got the taxation thing, but you know, what about adverse possession? What happens with bankruptcy? I mean, not, these are not like scientists that only a questions that only a rocket scientist would think of. You know, you'd, you'd think that mm -hmm. that people should have been honest. Well, and the, you know, there was a lot of awareness. Ted knew that. I knew that. It was, it was very visible, and it was a it was a real concern for uh, coming out of the Federal Fuel Committee sort of approach of things. It was a real concern that. The land might be lost. That was a bigger concern, really, than losing the money. Money's only money. Right. Listen, I guess my last two questions. One is, uh, do you think that uh, we've pretty well covered it, or do you think there's a subject area that it's worth talking about in terms of of uh, the historical record that we haven't touched on? Well, I'm sure after you've gone or sometime I'll think of it, yes. I mean, it's a big topic. Um, you've done, you've certainly covered a lot of the, uh, a lot of the points on that. Okay, well, I hope if I think of something else, I hope I can give oh, you yeah. a jingle. Um, and then the last thing, uh, which is beyond my, my work, I'm going to, fall in the heap after 71 and do sort of a, a brief epilogue, but it's also not only am I exhausted on this project, but it's not, um, I can do the Claims Act, or I feel good about doing it because I wasn't yeah. there, but I've obviously been too involved in, in the last 20 years of implementation, but in terms of the, whoever may be listening to this tape for other purposes, uh, without spending another couple hours, which I'm sure we can do, uh, how uh, how do you think this has all turned out? I mean, is, has this turned out uh, the way you imagined it, or different? And if you could change something, if you could go back to the conference committee and say, knowing what I know now, here's how I think we should do this or that differently. Do you have any sort of general views on all that? Well, uh, in my old age, uh, certainly. Uh, one of the views that I've developed is, is that history is really unpredictable, and uh, the claims of the people see to patterns and predictability and recycling and so on are grossly exaggerated. So, you know, I guess I think that the Federal Field Committee, in some ways, had a better approach than on right, conceptually, to begin with. But, you know, predicting how, if you turned, if you changed that, that is, you made it into more of a, a larger settlement in terms of the amount of land, <coughs> with more uh, uh, with a sort of a federal suzerainty, federal government suzerainty, but, and the native organizations presumably having to end up doing more battles with the federal government than the state, 
but over, let's say, 120 million acres or whatever some of the proposals were earlier instead of 40, that it, and with fish and game rights preserved, that would have been then my preference for a settlement that is less of this hard cash, fee simple, it's just a land deal stuff. Uh, but, uh, but I, you know, to say that that would have worked out better than what's happened here would be uh, highly presumptuous on my part. <laughs> they would have, presumably, there'd be a different set of arguments, I suppose, there'd still be arguments <coughs> over uh, subsistence, only they'd be phrased in different ways. I mean, their underlying economic uh, uh, imperatives that don't go away, regardless of what you shape a land settlement act. Uh, and it, you know, you could see, and I think that kind of an act would have provided a small benefit to a larger number of people. And I've not been particularly happy with the disparate effects of the act. The real beneficiaries of the Native Claims Settlement Act are the people that have gotten jobs with the Settlement Act corporations. And that's not a small thing, because if we're talking particularly if we're talking about a, a generation of people that have gone through that, and, and it's changed the nature of, uh, it's created a Native middle class that wasn't there before. But, uh, it's still left a sea of people out there for whom it's still a sort of true the Native Settlement Act hasn't meant much to them, and the rights that were really important to them, mainly fish and game rights, haven't been as well protected as they might have been under a different form of settlement. Well, actually, I was going to ask you, I, I forgot about that, is that I have always heard that, because you can't find out, I've never found anything about it, that there was a provision in the Senate Claims Act bill that was basically the great 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 grandparent of uh, basically the subsistence title of the Milka. Mm -hmm. And there was not a companion provision in the in the House bill. And that was not included obviously by the conference committee. And I have always heard that it was because uh, basically the Egan administration, whatever that was, uh, had come in and said, look, you don't need to do that. You know, that's too heavy-handed. You don't need to do that in this bill because we understand the problem and we really love the natives and you can depend that our, in those days it was a fishing game board, not uh, two boards the way it is now, but that, that you know, our fishing game board is going to deal you know, in a real, in a fair way to protect the the expectations of these people who happen to be a segment of our own citizenry, and so this is really not necessary. And yeah. Obviously, by that was '71, and obviously by '77, when I got into business, when, when the D2 campaign had started, at least in the Native community, the perception was that that if there that pledge had ever been made, that the state fishing game boards really had no intention of of really doing what had to be done to treat people out of the villages fairly. And I was wondering, do you have any 
recollection of any of that or how that all dropped out or well I do recall that it would have been the uh, it would have been Egan's position and it would have been the position of his commissioners of fishing again that uh, that we ought to have this one regime for the administration of fish and game rights that's what he would have But it was also, I never noticed it being contested. You know, it just never seemed to be on the agenda from the other side of the table. They're willing to concede, they're willing to concede that without, you might say, the kind of guarantees that uh, might have been sought. Um, yeah, it involves, uh, you know, I, I think that Egan, all of us were just passing through, and uh, how fish and game rights have been administered by and the setup of the Fish and Game Board and the way that those things are put together. You know, uh, the politics of it, if you will, the very special politics of, of Fish and Game undoubtedly is made for a less fair system than that is the institutional setup almost brought about a uh, result that would not have been the right one. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, the last thing, and then I will get out of here, is uh, that we haven't talked about, but we, we touched on it with the municipality concept, uh, is this whole uh, neo-sovereignty movement that we have today. Um, and it is, it's amazing to me, uh, in terms of, of things falling through the cracks, that the little I know about it, it certainly Wayne Aspinall and Steve Jackson, for lack of two other suspects, if they had ever known that there would be arguments out on the table today, that after going through all this blood on the floor for the Claims right. Act, that all they got was turning all these villages into yeah. the equivalent of the Navajo Reservation as a matter of law, that Wayne yeah. probably would be bumping out of the top of his coffin for God's sake. That's right. That's right. <laughs> Yeah, well, I, was I can remember sitting around with, well, particularly with Bill Benes, who was uh, probably the top lawyer, you know, uh, on the non-native side, <coughs> the government side, and that job, talking about looking at the whatever that clause is, you know, where we say this is it. Right. <laughs> you know, really, is there any conceivable way that you could undo this you know, or get any? Uh, have we really locked it down? I think we sat there trying to think of ways that you could unlock it unsuccessfully for, <laughs> for a couple hours or something. But that was never, uh, I mean, no one ever viewed that as a potential problem, then, I guess. Is that That's right. Well, the first time that popped up with Charlie Everson's sleep suit. That's a, well, but even that, see, that was not, that was still just on Aboriginal title. That was not in any of these yeah. jurisdictional things. I've, I've talked to 
Van Ness's story, which uh, I think is a quite legitimate one, is that is that uh, it was the serendipity of of Jackson. You know, it was Jackson's committee, but Clinton Anderson was still around there, and Clinton had given that committee up because he went over to armed services or something, mm -hmm. and, and everybody but Bill basically was were Clinton Anderson's people, and Scoop had to keep them around. And the guy that did all the Indian work on that committee was a guy named Jim Gamble, who was an old guy like Lou Ziegler. Yeah. And, and Scoop specifically, he did not like Gamble, and he didn't want those people involved in this. And Bill says, hey, you know, I was just out of University of Washington Law School. I don't know. You know, the Talmudic uh, intricacies of, you know, Indian law, I mean, who cares about that stuff other than, than about a handful of people? And I didn't know anybody about that stuff. And so, uh, at least on the Senate side, since nobody ever raised the issue with us, uh, including the natives, I might add, in those days, right. uh, there was nothing... You know, I didn't under, I didn't flag the issue. I mean, if this was like a blue book test yeah. in law school, he would have like <laughs> flat because he didn't pick the issue. Out. Yeah. Um, yeah. But it was is that sort of I would, well I, obviously I don't know about a whole lot of that stuff that involved Bill and working. It's interesting to talk about that. It does. It certainly fits with. Uh, but I I wasn't certainly wasn't involved. In but yeah, I basically that that aspect of it that you're talking about, we missed it. Okay. Well, great. I think that I have totally exhausted my list of questions, and I well, I'm looking forward to uh, your product. Uh, well, we last shall time I was interviewed at this length, it was uh, Jack uh, Roderick, you know, for mm -hmm. this book he's sure. doing on the history of the oil industry. Sure. Waiting for his product. Now yeah, for almost the two years for since I did the interview. Yeah, actually, I uh, I take some pride in uh, talking about this. No, we haven't talked about right. this. Uh, you, I was a, uh, a friend of Hugh Gallagher, and of course, I've been uh, fairly close to Bartlett, and uh, therefore I knew Hugh and. and uh, before that, even I knew Bill Foster. Bill, I knew Bill Foster when he and I had been sort of colleagues from either end of the hall down in the legislature. When he was at the Legislative Affairs Agency, and I was the uh, uh, Deputy Attorney General, and uh, so uh, I, th I think it is. I didn't ask too many. that uh, once they figured it out, the oil industry was going to make sure a settlement went through. And they played a very positive role. And uh, I suppose, you know, uh, I don't know that they uh, uh, influenced or how they, I know they must have, but I don't know how they went about it, what particular influences they had in the shape of the act, but obviously they were interested in proprietorships. They wanted 
somebody to deal with. They didn't like dealing with the federal government. They liked dealing with the state. They were happy to deal with native corporations. That was a fine form as far as they were concerned. Uh, and presumably they knew what they were doing based upon history in Arizona and uh, Oklahoma and so on. So, uh, and they, uh, it was pretty clear to me also that they were providing subsidies. Uh, I don't know whether those subsidies ever got reported or whether you'll ever get, get Gallagher or, or Foster or anybody else to admit that those subsidies occurred. But they, uh, they certainly, they were enabled, the guys involved with the Settlement Act to move forward on the, uh, financially. Uh, and that was not against our interest from our point of view. We wanted the, you know, the Alaska Natives to have a fair chance to, a good chance to make whatever case they were going to make in, uh, in Washington. Right. Well, actually, did, did you guys, well, I think one of the fascinating parts of all of that is that is I've talked to both Foster and and you about this that that all through '69 that you know, as this thing was building up yeah. that the pipeline was always on a separate track from settling right. native claim. There's a lot of revisionism in the native community now about how we held the pipeline hostage. That was never the AFN rolled over on the pipeline. Yeah, and. It was not until Legal Services in April of 70 hooked up with Arnold and Porter, and remember they got that injunction out of George Hart up there right. in Stevens Village. And, and I've gone in, that's a fascinating vignette. I've, I've really gotten into that in great detail, but among other amusing things, that case was totally wrongly decided. <laughs> but Hart knew nothing about Indian law, yeah. but the statute he relied on had nothing whatsoever to do with the situation. Yeah. Everybody knew that, and and this guy Dan Resnick, I don't know if you know Resnick from Arnold and Porter, but he pitched, he knew Hart, and so he pitched that case to Hart as a, as a contract. You know, like, we don't want to stop the pipeline, but my my villages went up and we shook hands with, with taps, and then the minute that we shook hands with them, they screwed us, and, and we need more leverage here. And so Hart bought this whole thing as a, yeah. as a contract deal. But it was at that point, according to Hugh, that as a response to that injunction, that the TAPS Owners Committee then went completely berserk. And finally, Hugh said that he'd been trying to tell them ever since 69 that this was a big mess and they really needed to pay attention to land claims. But right. it was at that point then that Foster got involved, mm -hmm. and then it was in the fall of '70 when Ed Patton came here to the Anchorage Chamber and told them no pipeline, no land claims, no pipeline. Right. And Ted seems to be going through all of this, you know, being the old public land lawyer that he prides himself on being, and saying, no, 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 Ed Patton's wrong. We don't have, <laughs> we don't have. Uh, you know, as a matter of law, there's nothing that's, you yeah. didn't have to, but in terms of the politics of it, at that point, it got linked. Yeah. And, and totally by mistake, as near as I yeah. can figure out. <laughs> and, and so I guess that's sort of, a, that war story is a long way of saying, did, did, did Egan and you at that time, were you sort of in the, 
in the Ted camp or in the sort of the Hugh Gallagher camp? The, 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 the claim, was the Claims Act a legal impediment? I mean, were the, was Aboriginal title a legal impediment or was it a practical political impediment? Practical and political, yeah. yeah. We were happy to have the link. Yeah. Really? Because we wanted, we wanted uh, support for the settlement act. Mm -hmm. They gave the industry to go along with the settlement act. So hell, those guys I mean, were not, you know, that far. Uh, we both sort of politically grown up with the experience of LBJ and Sam Rayburn running the Congress, you know, and they're the ones, not Dwight D. Eisenhower, that got statehood. So we knew what oil power meant and getting some oil power there would give it the oomph to get this thing going. The problem with, always the problem with Congress, as you know, is to get them to do anything. And, and here was an opportunity to settle the Settlement Act that had been something that Egan had committed to when he came in, and which I had helped to reinforce, and uh, we wanted a Settlement Act. And there were times, like you say, with Wayne Aspinall sitting there thinking about his power and uh, where it looked like a moment of opportunity might disappear. And so getting these oil guys to help out was an important, uh, an important political plus. Besides that, I mean, you know, uh, Foster and, and Gallagher both knew Egan too, not as well as I did, but they, they knew him and, uh, and they we were all comfortable together. It's not like they were like some of the oily guys now, you know, they, they were a very different type of uh, public servant who worked, have to be working for the oil company. Okay, well, I think now I'll turn this off and get out of here. <laughs> yeah, all right.